Welcome to The Mentor List. To seek support and you need to allow yourself to be supported. Really have a point of difference. What is precious, what's really important and then putting some boundaries there. The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Welcome to The Mentor List. This is our specialist mini-series called Diversity Matters Leaders in Conversation. With your mini-series host, Richard Elstone, partner at Folly Durham, prior guests on the show, and well-known expert and coach in getting execs ready for making a move. I hope you enjoy this episode of Diversity Matters Leaders in Conversation here on The Mentor List. So, Sarah, Adam Gedge, thank you very much for coming to Diversity Matters and our leaders in conversation. It's really nice to have you here. Oh, thanks, Richard. I look forward to it. Great. Well, just let's kick off. I just really would like to find out a little bit more about what was childhood like in New Zealand? You know, who were your parents? Where did you grow up and all the rest of it? Hmm. Well, I was born, as you say, said, in New Zealand, uh, born in Auckland and a child born in the 60s and so therefore a baby boomer, one of three girls. Uh, so I had, I've got two sisters and lived in New Zealand or uh, in Auckland largely until I was 14 and um, that was a time that my mum, my parents were divorcing or going through a divorce. My mum thought that it would be better for us to live in a place like the Gold Coast which at that time was very exciting and alluring, you know, particularly if you're living in the, you know, rainy New Zealand. And uh, so as a family, we moved, which was tough when you're 14 to do that. I had an older sister and a younger. And um, my mum's parents also came with us. So, you know, moved, uh, moved at that time. My dad stayed in New Zealand. And so we had to, all of us juggle the, you know, parent relationships. That would have been hard. Yeah, you know, I think so. I I mean, many kids have done that. Many families go through that. But moving countries makes it a little bit harder. I don't think people do that as much these days when they may go their separate ways. But, you know, what I remember most about my childhood in New Zealand was, you know, developing a love of sport. And uh, it is a great sporting nation, kicks, so to speak, well above its uh, weight in terms of performance globally. And, uh, you know, that was a good Mm. experience. Fantastic. And uh, so when you go back to Auckland these days, how much has it changed since those days, those heady days in the 1960s and 70s? Oh, look, I don't remember really the 60s. Obviously, I was too little. 70s, I do. It's changed. It needed to change a lot. New Zealand's a wonderful place to visit. It's been terrific to take my kids back. Two of my three kids were born there, and I'll go through that in a minute. It's a marvellous country. It's changed a lot, modernised, and uh, my dad still lives there, so plenty of good reasons and some good friends, plenty of good reasons to, to visit there. Very good. And uh, what do your mum and dad do? Are they, do you follow in their footsteps at all? Are they involved in technology and all the rest of it? Or? No, I think though they are both technically literate or technologically literate. They're in their early 80s, born just before the Second World War and went through all those challenges in their younger lives. And their history is that my dad's Scottish my mum's English, and at, separately, but at around the same time, they both emigrated to New Zealand. And my mum trained as a dental nurse, a school dental nurse, mm-hmm. and worked at that until I think she had kids. And then subsequent to that, she worked in many roles, I think more in the administration type areas and in, in um, organisations. And her last, 
her last role, actually, she worked until her early 70s, was as a library aide in the Southport State School. So she had a sort of a long career. I haven't followed in any of that, fair to say. I think she has more patience, perhaps, than I do. <laughs> My dad, quite an entrepreneurial streak, I think, if I if I look at it. He wouldn't speak of it like that. But with his parents, they started... I think it was called the Adams Supermarket. One of the first supermarkets in New Zealand was set up by them. And then he moved into the food industry. And I think he set up the first burger bar, you know, before hamburgers were fashionable or when they were becoming that. And then after that, got together with some business partners and they set up a really well-known set of steak restaurants. Mm -hmm. Uh, He cooks a really great steak. And that's really what he did for the majority of his working life, you know, being an owner-operator and entrepreneur uh, with uh, fellow partners in the food and beverage industry, I suppose. And that, uh, you know, he had a great love for that. Mm. Uh, No formal training as a chef. And my mum would say that he couldn't cook when they got married and she taught him everything he knows about cooking. Who knows? I I don't know. I'm not getting into that debate. Um, But he does cook a pretty good steak. Fantastic, fantastic. And um, so at school or, you know, either on the Gold Coast or back in Auckland, now, typically in one's early life, one has a sort of mentor that sort of helps sort of shape who you are. Is there anybody back in those sort of days that, you, you know, maybe at university or something that you just, you admired and that taught you and helped you become the person you are today? I think the, we didn't think of them as mentors then, did we? We thought of people, as you say, that we admired. You know, at school, I played a lot of sport. Mm-hmm. And I think the people that I looked to most were perhaps the coaches of the – I played a lot of hockey and a lot of tennis, more Mm -hmm. hockey than tennis. That was my first love. And I think really the coaches, you spend a lot of time with your teams, with your coach, you're doing training or on travelling on a trip or whatever, and I think you learn a lot through uh, Mm. sport and being in sporting teams. And, you know, I think there were uh, quite a few coaches along the way that were often actually the teacher, a teacher, and then the coach of a particular sport they were interested in could have been the PE teacher or whatever. I think I can think as you're speaking of, you know, sort of various people sparked in my mind. Anybody in particular? I think when I was um, before I, no, sorry, after I left New Zealand. So when I was on the Gold Coast, at, I went to St Hilda's. There was a great science teacher there, Chris Coey who was also, uh, she played club hockey and I don't know that I'd call her the coach per se, but she was very similar to that, you know, at, uh, and she actually would often play in the team herself and, you know, was a working mum and, you know, had a great personality, a lot of fun and could run around pretty well on the hockey field. And, you mm-hmm. know, I probably sort of, I, I certainly did admire her contribution, I suppose. I didn't think of it like that. So I just, how, did, how, how did she sort of help? shape you did she did she drive you or what does she do what was her why do you admire her I think she was a you know a person that was uh had a love for sport but also was pretty smart and a great teacher really genuinely interested in how 
I suppose, her students or the people, you know, on the team, depending on whether we're in the science class or on the hockey field, how they were going. And it wasn't just always around winning. It was around, um, you know, getting together and uh, having a go and, uh, you know, performing as best you can, getting the best out of people. I think that's what I would remember about her. Fantastic. And then after school, did you uh, go to university where, and whereabouts mm. did you go? So I was I went to university in Brisbane because I mm-hmm. was on the Gold Coast. So I went and studied accounting. I didn't get into my first options, let's say. So I had to go through the second round of university offers, which was a scary thing. And that's how I chose accounting because I, I knew that, uh, you know, it was at that time where you put down six areas that you would like, you know, in preference, one to six. I think I got number five. I had no intention of whatever number five was. I think it was PE teaching, actually. (laughs) And I had no intention of doing that, but you just filled your foreman in that way. And it was a bit of a surprise. I should have studied more, maybe Richard, uh, going way back when. So, I decided I needed to pick a course that I knew would not accept me. I don't want to sound not acceptable, but that I had the marks to safely get into. So I picked accounting and that's basically how I forged my career somewhat accidentally. Right, very good. And so talking about your career, where did you go after you finished? Were you at IBM straight away or? No, so I joined a chartered accounting firm out of Brisbane. It was a global one. It was Anderson. Then way, way before the Enron days, although not too far before Enron because otherwise that dates me too much. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I started off in in Anderson in the blue Camelco Tower, which uh, is it Camelco Place, I think, or the building's still there on Eagle Street in Brisbane. And I did the first part of my journey with Anderson, the first 10 years, I remember that well. And actually, when you talk about mentors, I think the strongest mentors I had were the partners in the in the firm, mostly in Brisbane, because they were the ones that I would work every day with, mm. who I really did admire. They were amazing operators, experts in their technical domain, so to speak, able to deal with really complex issues, great with clients, articulate. And I did really look up to those people as great, I'll call them leaders, leaders in their field. Mm. And that really set my first goal in my career, which was I wanted to become one of them. I wanted to become a partner. Ironically, there were no females. It was all males. didn't occur to me, you know, at the time. But I nevertheless had great training opportunities to progress. And during those that first period of time, there was a particular partner that you know, probably had an eye open for me in my progression. And uh, his name's Dennis Thorne. He okay. actually lives just around the corner from me in Brighton, somewhat like ironically, <laughs> here in Melbourne. But he then moved to New Zealand to help Anderson grow as a business in New Zealand. It was a lot smaller then. And they were picking off their business consulting part of their services. And I had moved out of sort of that auditing area where I had my core training more into management and business consulting and so he said hey do you want to come over to New Zealand I was a Kiwi so there was some you know natural affinity so I decided to pick up sticks with my husband and I was married at that time and um, we decided to go and have a time in New Zealand for about three years but then I ended up leaving. As soon as I made partner, I can't believe I did this. Like the week later, I resigned and joined PwC Consulting. I can, in hindsight, believe I did it, but I can't believe I did it at the time, I think. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I got a little bit of feedback, let's say, around that. And I went into PwC 
actually as a director, not as a partner, but I figured, well, I've just done it at Anderson, I'll do it again, which I did 12 months later, I, I became a partner at PwC. And then, of course, history wrote the book of me moving into technology in a way because IBM, five years later, bought PwC Consulting, and that was the part of PwC that I was in. Mm. And that was my step into really the area of technology. So accounting into technology, Mm. I mean, uh, it's two completely different fields. Do you feel yourself an accidental technologist then? I think that might be a good way to describe me, but just don't ask me to do any coding. (laughs) Um, I think there's a lot in common, not necessarily in the technical elements, but through my time around accounting, auditing, business consulting, you know, the, the role you've really got to play is to understand how a business works. And I think to be good around technology, even more so these days, you know, you really have to understand a business. It's not anymore just about what software does it's actually about how you can actually help an organization go through whatever its transformation is you need to understand the core of a business its processes Mm. and so forth and I think that's the common factor for me I've always had an interest in how businesses work Mm. uh, in didn't matter which client or industry I was in you know I've always had that interest so I think that's helped Absolutely. So then PwC Consulting got bought by IBM and you found yourself with the, uh, the in the big blue. Yes. How was that? Well, you know, I was one of the partners that were going pick me to exit me from this horrible idea of joining IBM. Unfortunately, I wasn't one of those. There weren't many people in that category because I think, you know, IBM was buying not only the client base but also the, um, well, the people in the business. And it was uh, very, very different. Went from a partnership style, collegiate culture to one that was corporate, you know, without a doubt. Mm. So a huge amount of change. But I also had a role when that transaction came about to integrate. So whilst I was from the PwC side, they picked the leaders of the new parts of what turned out to be global business services, about 50-50 IBM or a PwC person. I was in New Zealand. I had the opportunity to integrate the two businesses. Mm. So, you know, whilst I might not have liked it myself, I had a role to play and that was to help everybody get on the bus, so to speak, and integrate these two businesses so that their teams could come together and we could continue to be great. Fantastic. All right. Well, being a woman in technology, that's diversity, isn't it, really? So how are you perceived by clients and internally within IBM as a senior business leader? Well, I think quite well. Uh, Certainly clients. I mean, clients have long had the objective and they're not all in the tech industry, but, you know, they've got had, many of them have had diversity on their radar. And you've got to remember at that time, I was actually in New Zealand and diversity in New Zealand and gender balance and the proportion of Maori and Polynesian people in New Zealand's 10%. So there was a very, I think, different and more open-minded view. I still do think this Mm. between New Zealand and Australia, I think. So you're talking about, you know, how was it in IBM? I think you could say it was different in New Zealand to what it was in Australia and probably different across, you know, different cultures and mm. and uh, businesses within technology for that matter. So I think 
I felt it was some time before I actually had a what I'd call a diversity moment myself because being one of three girls going to an all-girls school, my parents had either deliberately or by default never brought into my life that I can remember a limitation because I was female as opposed to male. So I don't know how they managed to do that. Wonderful empowering, isn't it? Yeah, I never had that lens. I never Mm. thought, gosh, I can't do that because I'm not a man. I never thought that. Even when I was working for male partners, I didn't think like that and I didn't feel I'd been disadvantaged at all. I think the first moment was actually I was in IBM in New Zealand and um, I, I don't think diversity was a topic we even, even talked about until I remember with my second daughter, or well, my second child, my first daughter, who's 14 now. I was on maternity leave, actually, uh, with her, and the person I was reporting to in Australia had decided that the person who was acting in my role at the time could probably stay in that role when I returned to work. And I would need to sort of sort out some other role for myself. And I remember taking the phone call around that and almost like, you know, I was incredulous thinking, I don't understand this. Mm. And I mean, it didn't turn out like that when I returned to work. You know, these, let's say, waters had been smoothed over, rough waters been smoothed over. But it was really disconcerting. And mm. it certainly did trigger for me the fact that I would move, change my role in IBM because the person that I was reporting to and that part of the organisation had a bit of a blind spot thinking maternity leave was about pausing your career, which is in fact not the case. It's Mm. about having a moment in your life and uh, can hopefully continuing your career. Absolutely. And that that was an eye-opener to me. But, you know, I turned that moment into then deciding I was going to take on something else at IBM. And that, in fact, was the trigger, not right in that month, so to speak, but it was the trigger for me taking a role in back in Australia in IBM. And that's the reason we moved to Melbourne with two very young kids and my husband and I, where there was an opportunity here and we thought, well, let's do it. Let's do it. Mm. And uh, then you had diversity moment number two, didn't mm. you, when you got to Melbourne mm. yeah. uh, <laughs> with, two young, with, yes. two, with two young children? Yes. Okay, diversity moment number two. Thanks, Richard, for raising that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the first week I arrived and my husband had done sort of all of the, let's say, lead work, worked out a place that we could stay in temporarily and so forth. And literally the week I arrived, I just went to work in Southgate there and I was still feeding my youngest, who was nine, nine or ten months, I think. And so I needed to have use a parents' room, and uh, there wasn't one. And I had come from IBM in New Zealand, and of course everything was, you know, sort of very helpful there. And it was that was a shock. And I remember very well calling up the person who ran diversity for IBM in Australia and saying, look, this is the situation, you know, what do you suggest? You know, can you help? And they suggested I just work from home. So I was happy to be sort of the change agent, you know, then they sorted it out, so to speak. And uh, certainly by the time I had my third child, that was well addressed and I didn't encounter such problems. But yeah, it's interesting. It's not that long ago, actually. So... You know, there were a lot of we – I was having a chat earlier this week with a number of uh, women who were lamenting of the fact that they virtually put their careers on hold when they have children and it's very, very difficult to sort of get it back on track again. 
Is there any advice that you would give those young ladies that are in there and those young women in their mid-30s about maintaining their career and how they would go about doing that? Yeah, I think it's a big topic and it makes people not only worry about that but a bit uncertain about, well, is this the right time to have a baby? It doesn't quite happen like that. Obviously, you can't just snap your fingers. How long should I have off? Am I going to miss out? Well, the first thing I would say is you never get the time back. And with my first, I did only take three months. Big mistake. You know, I wouldn't do that again. And I took six months for my two daughters, which, you know, was much better. I could have taken longer. I certainly couldn't have taken shorter. I think the key is to make sure that you stay connected. And not in a way that imposes a burden on you because, you know, you're dealing with little ones. But I think the obligation is on the organisation really is to help you stay connected so that you're not at the necessarily at the forefront of people's minds. But, you know, that if there is, say, a salary review or a promotion review, a career opportunity may come up, that you're still in the mix just because you're on maternity leave. It doesn't mean you're on Mars. Mm. And that I think you should set that expectation before you go on leave. Mm. And um, if your organisation encourages you to stay connected to do your best to do that. And then when you come back to work, also set the right expectations about what you can and can't take on. And the last thing I would say is, you know, have advocates that sort of understand your, you don't have to be ambitious, but you may want to achieve certain things and, you know, make sure that they are in people's minds. Absolutely. And what about organisations? How can organisations help this. I mean, you alluded to some of it just mm. now, but you're you're also a very very senior manager, and you uh, and, and an executive these days. And you obviously have younger senior managers who eventually go off onto maternity leave themselves. How do you advise them, and and what advice would you give other organisations about how to deal with those young mothers? Well, I think firstly, I would hope that organisations have very supportive policies. And a lot of this does start with, you know, are the policies sound? So that might be on parental leave, it might be on return to work, it might be do we pay your super while you're on leave even though you've got unpaid leave? So what are the supporting policies that are in place? And the Workplace Gender Equality Agency has a lot of good insight and information and benchmarking around what good looks like. So I think that's table stakes. The other side then is the is the engagement, the cultural side, what people do. And I would like to think that any manager, I'd like to think I would always do this, is stay in contact. It is about, you know, the personal contact. And that may not be talking about work. It might be about tips for what mums do. In some instance, it might be talking to a dad who's mm. taking that extended care period as well. And, um, you know, when somebody's coming back to work, talking to them about that and, you know, don't overdo it, assuring people, reassuring people that just because you can only do two days a week and then build to three or whatever that mm. is, that is okay to do that. So I think a lot of it is around engagement, talking, discussion, reassurance, support. But that isn't easy if there aren't the underlying policies which are helpful. Absolutely. After IBM, you became CEO or Managing Director for Avenard, yeah. which is the Microsoft uh, joint venture 
with Microsoft and Accenture. It's Microsoft and Accenture, that's right. So they're a company that embraces diversity, aren't they? I mean, they, you know, I remember going to your offices and seeing the rainbow up and people being encouraged to be who they are and bring themselves to work. Mm. Was it just on the outside or was it genuinely like that as an organisation? I think the great thing about Avenard was that it had very strong goals and aspirations that were from top down. And so the CEO had KPIs around, in particular, gender diversity, because that's an issue in technology and what had been an issue for Avenard. I think the challenge that we had, certainly when I joined, on the other hand, is that whilst there was this great framework, in certain areas the rubber hadn't hit the road in terms of the local business, and this isn't uncommon, So, you know, it was a great opportunity for me and there was many others in the Avenard business that were able to be champions of bringing about the change and being able to really put the strategies that Avenard had globally into action locally. And so the global strategies were a great foundation and framework for some of the things that really resonated with the business locally. And then over time... So let's say in that four years that I was there, nearly four years, it sort of split into sort of two. The first half, which was having people come to grips with the fact that, okay, it wasn't just about gender diversity, but we had to pick that area first because we were only at about 16%. Mm. When I left, we are up at 27 Still plenty of room to move, but yeah, a, a big jump. I think when you visited us, we had some success around the gender side and we had moved into LGBTI and picked that as the next big topic because that's what teams wanted, that's what people wanted to embrace. Mm. And it's got a really nice culture within the organisation and so that was another platform that we could just leverage. People People wanted to be involved. Everybody has daughters, sisters, mothers or friends who are gay or whatever. And so people were very genuinely interested in in participating and being supportive. Fantastic. And now you're just picking up a new job with uh, Sapient as the CEO. Tell me about how you got that job and, and what you're there to do. Yeah, so I'm going to be the MD of the Sapient business here in Australia, which is um, you know fantastic organisation. It's part of the Global Publicist Group which is French headquartered and uh, quite well known for its focus on marketing and communications globally. So my job is to you know, help that organisation grow and thrive. It's got a very, very deep history and strength and a lot of credibility around being experience-led before perhaps being experience-led was trendy. Very deep engineering background, Mm -hmm. uh, come out of the West Coast of the US, and, um, you know, a lot there to work with, leveraging some tremendous global capability in the sapient business and helping the uh, great business here in Australia grow and um, do terrific work with clients, in particularly in um, in the space, working with organizations, customers. and helping on the uh, customer journeys. Yeah. You've come a very long way from being a little girl leaving Auckland, um, age 14, going moving to the Gold Coast with mum and a couple of sisters and then becoming a partner and all the rest of it. What what advice would you give your 21-year-old self if you could go back to 
being 21 and sort of uh, what advice would you give yourself from now with that lens uh, mm. about what to do in your career? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I would think that I would probably tell myself to, you know, not be serious, you know, as I was back then. I was very focused and I, I reflect on now thinking less about the role that I have and more about what I can achieve and the experiences I have, whereas back then it was all about becoming a partner. It's all about the role. And obviously there are different lenses then, you know, I hadn't achieved more senior roles and now I have. So now it's, you know, I have a different lens into that. I may well have not gone down the accounting track. I may have got into technology Earlier, sooner. Maybe. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I strongly encourage. So you're passionate about technology? Yeah, I think so. I think it can, it's life changing. Mm-hmm. So whilst it does lots of tremendous things in the workplace and it helps customers and so forth, this is great. But I think the implications it has for changing how you and I live our lives and have better lives. I visited a friend of mine that is now a double amputee uh, earlier this week as a result of having men in Chicago. And I also was so delighted not only to see that he's healthy, he's healthier than he's ever been, somewhat ironically, even though he doesn't have limbs now, he's got an amazing outlook. But I saw the video of him being set up for a bionic arm. And, you know, that... It would have brought tears to the eyes, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Um, You can see it. I can share it with you on Facebook. I mean, the technological advances that will help, you know, people have gone through adversity and so forth in many different spheres. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, makes me very passionate about the impact that technology can have on the world. Fantastic. Fantastic. Is there a sort of quote or a, or a mantra that you live by that if you need to centre yourself on anything that you just think back on that you live by? Yeah, I don't necessarily live by this quote, but it really resonates with me and I won't get the quote right. It's Maggie Thatcher and who's iconic. And, uh, you know, I've read about her. I've read about many iconic women and men for that matter. But that what she said was that whilst your home is the centre of your life, it doesn't need to be the boundary of your ambitions. And I don't live by that, but it's a very nice way that I can see how I live my life. It sort of is a neat fit for how I live my life is that I've always, perhaps it's because I've always had working parents. I've seen my grandparents work. I always anticipated working and having a career. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I never thought that I shouldn't, although many moments, you know, being a parent along the way, I've wondered about the trade-offs that you have to make and the prioritisation of things. Should I really be there instead of here? Uh, Should I really travel overseas, you know, for a week or two weeks? You know, what am I going to miss out on? And uh, I think that's something that is, uh, well, just resonates with me, you know, very much. Very good. And um, what about a book? Is there a book that you have read over the years, a management book or a leadership book or one that you suggest our listeners should have a chat, have you know, read to give them some great guidance in their career? Well, I'm going to answer that in a couple of ways. I mentioned that I've read many books about iconic people. Mm. I think that's a great way to understand people's stories and journeys and the challenges and what they've done to manage through that. 
And, you know, I like, probably like the true part of stories. I probably like nonfiction. And um, more recently, whilst I've done the Maggie Thatchers and Deera Gandhi, I can rattle them off in a way. I've also read about Turia Pitt and what happened after the Boston Marathon bombings, just how it affected people and how they overcame those things. So I would, you know, strongly advise people who are fascinated by people and those stories to think about reading some of those. The person I think that has provided great insight into both the context of his life, his career, and what he wants to do as a leader is Satya Nadella. He wrote the book, Hit Refresh that came out, I think, about a year or 18 months ago. And he's a long-term Microsoft person and the current CEO of Microsoft since 2014. I think in that book, for any leader, aspiring leader, or person who just wants to contribute in a really great way, there's something for everyone. He talks a lot about not only his own context, what shaped his career and how he lives his life, but how he's brought that in, and he has a love of cricket, how he's brought the love of sport or cricket together with what's shaped his early life in India into the thinking about how he can form a great leadership team at Microsoft. And, of course, we can see that, you know, it's vying to be the largest company in the world. Mm. And now it's not about size, but it is an indicator of performance. What I liked about what he says in his book, and there's many insights into the world of Microsoft, that's interesting, but he talks about humility, putting team before self, providing context, the importance Mm. of trust. There's a lot there that I think any leader can take a lot from. He also talks about the fact that they've had some challenges with their kids, and his wife suggested he read Carol Dweck's book on growth mindset. And he could see how that would translate into changing the culture and and leadership style at Microsoft. So he took that in as ideas into Microsoft. So that's the growth mindset. It's really around not being limited by or fixated by, you know. Have you read that book as well? Yes, I have certainly parts of it. And I think that to me, those two things of trust and having a growth mindset are probably the most important things I think about in terms of being the best that I can be. If you don't have those things and you're trying to be a good leader, it'll be very short term. You've got to have both of those. Well, thank you very much. Sarah, Adam Gedge, it has been an absolute delight to have you here this afternoon. Um, You've been a fantastic interviewee and, uh, and it's been great to have you interviewed today on Diversity Matters. Thank you for coming in. Thanks, Richard. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us today at The Mentor List. If you'd like to hear more or speak to us about recommending our next interview guest, come on through to mentorlist.com.au. You can also find out more about our suite of mastermind series taking shape in your area, your industry, and your discipline. We look forward to welcoming you to one of our events very soon. Stay tuned for another great show. for listening to The Mentor List. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, the best way to support the show is to just take a few seconds to leave a rating and or comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at mentorlist.com.au.
Until next time, this is The Mentor List. <laughs>